So the title of today's message is Puppet or Pilgrim. And we're going to be covering actually two chapters of Romans today. And because it's such a long um, section of the scripture, we're not going to have a reader this morning. I'll just be reading a few snippets here and there to introduce this subject to us. Now this message is going to be a little different than the previous ones in that it's going to be it's going to sound like it's a very heavy topic it's going to sound like it's something that that is almost suited for more of a college classroom than a church uh, but it's also a very important one because how we view God is how we live for God and over the last few weeks of me preparing this message I did a lot of studying I went in a lot of the commentaries I actually went into a lot of the books in my library that uh, deal with different uh, things within the Bible and illustrations and trying to explain what Paul is trying to explain to us in this chapter. So the main topic that is being covered today in this message, Puppet or Pilgrim, is the idea of God's sovereignty. And that's a big topic. It's a huge topic. It's one that is, is almost, almost too much for a Sunday morning sermon. And it sounds very weighty. It sounds maybe even a little intimidating uh, to talk about. Particularly, you know, us as Americans, we don't like talking about sovereignty because sovereignty um, points to kingship. And we as Americans are kind of sensitive about that. We fought a war to get away from kings, right? And I think that most, if not all of us, because of this idea of God's sovereignty, may have a few bad ideas and a few bad thoughts about what it means to have God as king. It might be something in the back of our mind that we just naturally resist and, and kind of shy away from of thinking of him as king. It pushes back against our desire as Americans to be free. We love our freedom in this country. We love the fact that we can go anywhere we want. We can do anything within the law, of course, that we can do anything we want. We can be anything we want in this country. So the idea of, of having a sovereign God over the top of us kind of pushes against us a little bit like that. I mean, we like Jesus. We like the fact that he's all about mercy and forgiveness but sometimes when we look at Father God and consider his, his sovereignty and his kingship, we consider him to be kind of the harsh disciplinarian that doesn't even really like us. He just tolerates us for the, the uh, purpose or, or for his son's sake. And for that reason, I want to address God and his sovereignty this morning. So this morning, we're going to try to answer three different questions regarding this subject. First of all, what does it mean that God is sovereign? What is God's sovereignty? What does it mean for our life? And how does it affect us on a daily basis? And all three of these questions can be summarized in the title of this message. Am I a puppet or am I a pilgrim? So let's pray. Father God, I'm going to need your, a lot of help this morning to get through this message, just because this is such a weighty topic, just because this is such a complicated topic, just because it's going to challenge all of our ideas of what it means to have you as our sovereign king. So I ask, Father, that you just prepare our hearts and our minds 
for the truth of your word, you have, that you challenge any preconceived ideas we have toward this subject, and that you place within us a foundation of truth that helps us to see you for who you really are. Father God, I thank you for, for the words of Paul, and I ask, Father, for the help in, in bringing this to your people this morning. And I ask this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. So the first question that we have to ask is, what does it mean that God is sovereign? What is God's sovereignty? Well, Easton's Bible Dictionary defines God's sovereignty as his absolute right to do all things according to his good pleasure. Now, we've often heard a person who, who like a politician, for example, or maybe a cabinet member in the United States government, who will say, well, I serve at the pleasure of the president. Well, what does that mean, that, that word pleasure? The word pleasure, in that case, is not meaning an emotional state of joy or happiness. This, this word pleasure here, God's good pleasure, means it's a decision of God's will that matches his character or design. So when that's used by a, a member of the cabinet or a member of the, the government that the president can hire or fire at will, when they say, I serve at his pleasure, it means I serve as long as I am following his plan. So the sovereignty of God is his absolute right to do things according to his good pleasure. In other words, we, in other words God is going to perform his will according to his character and his design. Now, two weeks ago, we talked about the two basic ways of looking at how we are saved and how they both have their root in how we view God's sovereignty. And that's why our view of God is so important. Now, to break it down, at least 90% of Protestant Christianity falls into the two camps. One is the Calvinist camp or, or view, and one is the Arminian view. Now, I'm going to broadly summarize how these two camps uh, look at the sovereignty of God. And there's, there's a lot of nuance in it, and, it's, and anybody, again, who might listen to this message will say, that's not exactly what my version of Calvinism teaches. This is just the very broad view, and I just want you to understand that. It's going to be important because most of us actually probably believe in a mixture of the two without even realizing it. Now, the strict Calvinist view, this is strict Calvin, taken from his writings, states that God is completely sovereign, meaning that everything that was, is, and ever shall be was directly part of his plan and even ordained or caused by him. And that word ordained means that he specifically caused it to happen. And that's a very important decision or distinction. Because if you think about it, if God has caused everything that has happened what would that mean everything good bad ugly everything in other words the strict calvinist view says that god directly causes people to sin and nothing exists other than what he has willed to be done so within the most Christians' minds, that should bring up a whole crockpot of questions, shouldn't it? Should, our, our mind should automatically kind of, of reject to that. And one of the questions that it could bring up is, well, if God ordained me to commit an act that he would say is evil, 
how can he hold me guilty for it? If I'm only a puppet on a string that reacts to God's manipulations, how can he hold me guilty for my actions? It sounds like Jesus needed to go to the cross for God, not for me. That, but that is a strict Calvinist view, and, and one of the uh, consequences of that view is exactly what I just said. And again, there are many nuances there, but that's how they view God's sovereignty. And when you start bringing up objections, they just say, hey, that's what the Bible says, we just need to worship him. Maybe I think too much, but I can't, I can't uh, stop right there. So let's switch um, over to the Arminian view and what we hold to. Calvin, just historically really quick, Calvin came first right after Martin Luther, within about 100 years after Martin Luther. John Calvin formed a Protestant theology, and a lot of it, it has a lot of good things in there. About 100 years after Calvin, a man named Jacob Arminius rose and put five, ref, um, five theses against Calvinism and said, this is the way I see it, and Christianity kind of split along those two lines. The, the Calvinists and the Arminians. Well, our Arminian view of sovereignty is that we say, yes, God is indeed sov sovereign. Absolutely sovereign. Absolutely in control of this universe. No question, no equivocation, period. God is indeed sovereign. However, within God's sovereignty, he has self-limited himself in some of the areas of human existence. Self-limited mainly when it comes to human free will. Free will. <laughs> free will is, is the cause of all the drama we see today. Free will is the idea that you and I and everyone else have a choice to do which is right or which is wrong as we see fit. And free will is critical, critical to our understanding of God's sovereignty. Because if we are only robots responding to God's programming, then we can't even worship in spirit and in truth because we're just fulfilling a programming that God put within us. We're not making a choice to love. You know, Tammy and I, our phone plan allows us to get a new phone every two years, or now 30 months. Uh, so we went and got new phones because the batteries wear out and, and everything with the, new, with the smartphones. And so we went, all both went out. We got brand new phones. I decided to get a note for school because I can write stuff on it real quick. It comes with this little cool pen under here, and if I can get it out. Little cool pen you can take out, and you can write, and I can even drop it and uh, point stuff over here, and it writes it on the screen, and it's kind of really cool. But, you know, one of the neat things on here is they have a voice memo. And I can literally program this phone to say, I love you, John. And it will just keep repeating, I love you, John. I love you, John. You're great. You're my master. You are awesome. But really, does the phone have a choice to say that to me? Or is it just fulfilling a programming? See, this is why free will is important, because we can't possibly love and worship God unless we have free will to do so. Otherwise, it's, it's just fulfill, it's a program. That's not going to mean anything for my phone to tell me it loves me because it's just doing what I told it to do instead of a free will choice to actually love me. 
And in their attempt to elevate God and God's sovereignty, a Calvinist will limit this idea of free will as being a reality. But this idea of free will answers questions about God's sovereignty that the Calvinist can't answer. For example, I would consider the biggest question about their view of God, which is what I've kind of already gone through, is if, God, if Calvinism is true and God causes everything that is, was, or ever shall be, how can a holy, righteous, and morally pure God ordain that which is evil? It's, it, it, it can't, the two things can't, can't exist together. Free will would answer with that, or Arminius would answer with that, and say, well, God does not ordain evil. Evil is the result of human free will choosing to do that which is morally wrong. And the scripture this morning gives us um, an example of this. In Romans 9, 6 through 9, it said, It is not as though God's word had failed. For not all who have descended from Israel are Israel, nor because are they his descendants, because they are all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the natural children who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this is how the promise was stated. At the appointed time, I, I meaning God, I will return and Sarah will have a son. Now, most of us probably know the story that is being referred to here. In Genesis chapter 15, God promises Abraham that he will have a son. Abraham is walking around one night praying to God, spending time with God, uh, looking up at the stars in the sky, and God tells him that he will make him a great nation. Abraham replies, God, I don't have a son. I'm 80 years old. I don't have a son, and all my possessions are about to be left to my servant when I die. I mean, he's probably thinking, I'm 80. I'm going to die any time. This is bronze age right now, okay? People usually don't live to 80. And so Abraham's probably thinking, I'm on my last legs here, and I don't have a son, and you're promising me that I'm going to be the, the um, progenitor of a of a people that are so numerous that they that would be like the stars in the sky. And so God promises him that he will indeed have a son. And the Bible says that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. In other words, he was made righteous through faith in God's promise. In Abram's case, years began to pass since the promise of him having a son. The years turned into over a decade and still no son. His wife, Sarah, or Sarai at the time, but Sarah, decided that, well, maybe God needs some help. Tell you what, servant girl, Hagar, um, why don't you go into Abraham's tent tonight? And if you get pregnant, then, you know, he'll have a son and we'll help out God here a little bit. And it led to the birth of a son. His name was Ishmael. Ishmael is now the ancestor of many of the Arab people. The very people who will be and remain the mortal enemies of Israel to this day. About ten years after the birth of Ishmael, God returns to Abram and Sarai and changes their name to Abraham and Sarah and sends a son that they had promised, Isaac, who was the father of Jacob, who God used to form the twelve tribes of Israel. You see, God's sovereignty was still seen here. God ordained that Isaac would come, and it still came true. 
even in the midst of human free will doing the wrong thing. But it also shows us how God can hold us guilty for doing the wrong thing that is not part of his sovereign plan. Ishmael was not part of his plan. And Ishmael and his descendants have been a severe thorn in Israel's side ever since Abraham and Sarah exercised their free will to put their own spin on God's promise. And that brings me to the next point. What are the implications of God's sovereignty and how does it affect us in our day-to-day lives? As I mentioned a few moments ago, there are those that believe that they really don't have a free will and that all of our actions were caused by a sovereign choice of God. And I think that's a great uh, mindset to have if you just want to be able to get away with anything. Right? You say, God made me do it. Well, then who's guilty, right? We talked about that. If God waves his hand and causes me to steal something, who's guilty of stealing? Me or the God who made me do it. For example, let's say a clerk in a store is behind on their, their rent, and they're, try, and they're sitting there and they're trying to figure out, maybe they're even praying, God, help me, help me figure out a way to, to be able to make my rent this month. And a drunk guy comes stumbling in and, he's, and he, buys a, he grabs a candy bar and says, I want this Snickers bar. And he's fumbling through his wallet and fumbling through his wallet and, all, and he pulls out a $100 bill and drops it on the, on the counter and he goes, okay, that's 75 cents, you owe me a quarter. Or that's a dollar, right? And so the clerk's like, okay. Gives him a quarter back, pockets the other $99 and now he can make his rent. So, Did God provide that $99 he needed? No. The clerk committed evil. He stole $99 from that guy. A Calvinist would say, well, God ordained that. Caused the clerk to do it. He might even go so far to say that, well, God provided the rent money through another person's sin. That he was taxing that guy for his sin. And I've had these discussions. They Actually, some of them are so ingrained in this that they think this. We would say, as Arminian believers in the Assemblies of God, that the clerk sinned by stealing the money from a guy who was intoxicated and not in their right mind. The Bible says that those who do evil and call it good are condemned. He said, shall we we do evil that good may result? No, their condemnation is deserved, is the exact um, wording of the Scripture. It's actually one of my... Um, favorite movies is called The Kingdom of Heaven. Anybody ever seen that one? It's, a, it's a, about a time of the Crusades. A, um, a guy is fleeing uh, a murder charge. His, he meets his father. His father's a crusader and a baron in the, in the area of Israel during the time of the Crusades. Owns a whole bunch of land around the city of Jerusalem. And it's right around the time that the Christians had taken Jerusalem away, back away from the Muslims and set up their own kingdom there. And so they had um, knights of various orders sitting there. And one of the knights of one of the orders, or the knights of this particular order were very warlike. And they always wanted to go out and slaughter Muslims for no particular reason. Well, the king of Jerusalem had had a peace with Salah Adin, the Muslim leader, for years. There hadn't been any war, there had just been minor conflicts, and they they would all come together and talk it out and and make sure that the people who caused the conflict got punished, and there was a sense of peace, and you didn't have a whole bunch of people trying to slaughter each other all the time. 
Well, these knights who wanted the fight would always start yelling, God wills it! God wills it! God wills it! And no, no army with the cross of Jesus Christ in front of it can ever be defeated. And they would yell things like that. You could see it was almost like they had that Calvinistic uh, viewpoint there. And the irony is that they made the same mistake that the Israelites did with the Ark of the Covenant. They thought as long as they had their symbol of God there, that God was with them. And in that, they had a wrong view of God's sovereignty. They thought that if they did the right, if they like kind of had all their ducks in a row from a religious standpoint, that God was automatically going to bless whatever they did, no matter how horrible it may have been. The Israelites did the same thing in the Old Testament. You remember, oh, we need to go get the Ark of the Covenant because we have the Ark of the Covenant, we can't be defeated. Well, what happened? They got defeated. What happened to the Crusaders? They all got killed saying this kind of thing. They made the mistake of thinking as long as that symbol was there that God was with them. They had that wrong view of God's sovereignty. We see today the same thing today by people who wear a cross but still do and support things that are completely antithetical to the Christian faith. There's a lot of, of, of um, press about that in the 90s where recording artists would wear a cross and then say that you know abortion was okay. Or they would wear a cross and they're on marriage four in a year. Or they're, wear, or they're wearing a cross and, and proclaiming um, just all kinds of sinful situations. We see it today, even today, not as often as we did several years ago, but we saw it by Christians who would rather blow up an abortion clinic instead of offering to help those women who are in a crisis pregnancy. These kind of people would self-righteously point out that because, well, this woman is there because of their sin and not see that they also are sinners in needing of Christ. People like that in their zeal to uphold what they consider to be the law of God, they forget the words of Jesus. Some of us saw this when we were watching The Chosen about Jesus attending a dinner party at Matthew's house. Matthew just got saved, just started following Christ. He leaves his position as a Roman tax collector, probably made him one of the richest people in the city. And he has a dinner party and invites all of his friends. Well, his friends at the time were the other people who were rejected by his culture. The prostitutes, the scar the, some scam artists, some con men, some um, you know, just scoundrels and undesirable people. And he invites them to come to this party to meet Jesus. Well, this violate, Jesus going to this party violated the Jewish tradition that no good Hebrew should ever enter in and share a meal with somebody who has a lifestyle of sin, like a Roman tax collector. And they call Jesus out. They say, why does your master dine with these sinners? Dine with tax collectors and prostitutes. And that was unforgivable in the eyes of a Pharisee. And Jesus responds to their, their criticism when he said, Jesus said, now go and learn the meaning of this scripture. And this is from the New Living Translation. I want you to show mercy and not offer sacrifices. For I have come not only those who think they are righteous, 
but those who know they are sinners. Years ago, I was preaching at the Kenosha County Jail to a group of women who are either there waiting for their trial or their sentencing. And we usually did three services when we went there, two for the men, one for the women. And the women were usually last. And the guards, they bring you in, they lock you in a room with all the prisoners, and then the, God le- and then the guard leaves. And they do this so the prisoners can feel free to express themselves in church. Now, amongst the women, in, regard, in contrast to the men, with the women, there weren't any people saying, I got railroaded, I got framed, I'm innocent, I didn't even do it. And all that officer is picking on me, who's racist, and, and all these other things you hear from the men. There, were, there wasn't anything about that with the women. They all knew they were guilty. They all knew it. And through the church service and, and the ministry of the Word and, and the worship and everything else, those women just melted. And, and, so, and one of the guards had told me before the women came in, he goes, this is a really rough crowd and we might have to come in and take them out because I'm not sure how they're going to react to you. And, but through the ministry of the Word, the Holy Spirit just did an incredible work in their lives. And they just fell, I mean, some of them were on the floor weeping and crying out and, and repenting before Jesus. And it was, just, it was something that really blessed my heart because it was the intersection of, God's, of God exercising His sovereignty and allowing human free will. You see, these women exercised their free will. They did something that was a crime. They did something that was evil. And now they were receiving a punishment. It was God's sovereign will that they never did it, but they exercised their free will. But God still used it to bring them to a place of humbling before God so that, he, so that then they could follow the Holy Spirit's promptings to finally surrender to Him. And we have to remember this one point about God's sovereignty and how it interacts with our lives. And it's probably the most important point of this morning. God is sovereign. And according to His own word, His own design, and His own own plan, He has promised He will punish those who rebel against His commands. However, The Bible also says that God is not slow in keeping this promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, He is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. See, it's God's sovereign will that we all repent of our bad free will choices. But He wants you to also obey the Holy Spirit. He wants you to Exercise your free will to turn from that sin and be saved. And we'll end this morning with the final question is how does this affect me in my life? And we'll start by reading Romans 9, 14 through 25. This is Paul speaking. What shall what then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on those whom I have compassion. Verse 16, it is not therefore depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. 
For the scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name may be proclaimed through all the earth. Therefore God has mercy on those who he wants to have mercy, and he hardens those who he wants to harden. One of you will say to me, well, then how does God still blame us? Who shall resist his will? But who are you, O man, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to him who formed it, Why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for noble uses, uses and some for common use? What if God, choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath, prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glories known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory? Even us, whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles, as he says in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people. I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. So three questions posed by Paul here. The truth claim, God is creator. As creator, he has the absolute right to do with you whatever he wants. Do we have a right then to stand up to God and point a finger in his face and say, why did you make me like this? Why did you do this to me? Why did you cause this to happen? How come this is, this is the way my life is going? I would say no. You're a toddler about to stick a fork in a light socket. Most days. Right? Our free will is like a toddler about to stick a fork in a light socket. If God has to come around, grab you away from the light socket, slap your hand and take that fork away, is God violating your free will or is he protecting you? He's being protective. You know, my, I, I was listening to my wife saying earlier, you know, sometimes you get up on a Sunday morning and, and everything seems to go wrong to keep you from church. And sometimes it could be protective and sometimes it could be the enemy attacking. But sometimes you may have been late for work or the car didn't start or something happened and you're saying, well, God, why are you doing this to me? Well, it was because of that accident that happened right before you got there and you would have crashed into it too. We just never, never know sometimes of how God is moving in the background. In the same way, God is going to occasionally slap our hands. God is going to occasionally take away things that can hurt you and even remove you from certain situations that could end in your spiritual death. Anybody here ever lost a, a job even though you're a great worker? I have. I was, I was, I, I was doing really good at a job uh, manage helping to manage a call center and all of a sudden my job was taken away it was a good paying job great benefits every whole nine yards all of a sudden it was taken away but if i had stayed in that job i wouldn't be here right now because i was moving up in the company and and i probably would have stuck with that maybe god did that seeing ahead was in the future that there's a situation that would develop that would bring you harm or cause you to wander away from him. And what I considered at that time to be a bad thing was actually life-saving for me. Another way, though, that God can exercise his sovereignty is by 
in our, in our day-to-day lives especially is by making an example of you to, for others to learn from. Are you glad that you didn't live during the time that the Bible was being written and that your life isn't there for, for everybody to see? You ever think you're going to get to heaven and, and talk to David and kind of be, you're here? And sometimes God's exercising of his sovereignty is by making you an example. And it can be good and it can be bad. Perhaps you stay entirely faithful to God. He richly blesses you because of your faithfulness. And you have that, that prayer of Jabez's life where he keeps you from harm and enriches your life. Or maybe you wander. Maybe you earn yourself some pretty significant consequences. Maybe it's jail, illness, broken relationships. Perhaps your rebellion has caused you to lose great jobs and great opportunities, and you're currently in a position of suffering from all of this. And with either of these circumstances, God can use them either as a cautionary table or tale to instruct us, or use it to show that He blesses those who live for Him. But what about people when people live faith-filled, obedient lives and still bad things happen to them? That's the hard one, isn't it? When you're living for God, you're being obedient, and still the bad things come. Well, how do we handle that? And it's such an important question. God gave us a whole book of the Bible that deals with that very topic. Book of Job. Maybe we'll do that as a, as a series one day. I encourage you to read it, though. But I'm going to give you the spoiler. It ends with Job... Job's acceptance that God is God. When Job questions, why is this happening to me? All I did was, was live for you, God, and you, you took away my, my wife, my flocks, my property. You've now, I have basically leprosy sitting in a dirt pile surrounded by friends who don't believe me and are keep accusing me of sin. How come you keep doing this to me, God? And it's chapter after chapter of, of Job lamenting and his friends trying to ask him. And finally it says that God answered him through a storm. And he says, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Where were you when he did all these magnificent and great things? Can you capture a leviathan and pull it out with a fish hook? Can, and he's just, he's just pointing out that I'm God and you have no right to question me. And you need to trust what is going on. Great book of the Bible. See, God said, I don't have to explain myself. And God does. God, I don't want to make it sound like God is, is mean. He's not. But he doesn't really have to explain himself. He's God. And even if he did, let's say God said, okay, I'll give you the entire explanation. But you're going to have to be here for a couple thousand years for me to explain all the intricacies of it. Do you think he's going to be able to fit all of that intricate information into that four pounds of fat between your ears? Nervous tissue, brain tissue is fat, by the way. Do you think you're going to be able to, to actually comprehend that? I wasn't insulting you. I just I thought clinically for a moment. Sorry, <laughs> that wasn't written in here. But that's, it's true. Do you think that God, even if he did want to explain something to you, that you'd be able to even understand it? You know, I call this message Puppet or Pilgrim. Meaning that you can either see God as some capricious entity looking to mess with you in your life, 
or you can see him as a loving father, guiding you as a pilgrim, heading toward a land and an existence that will fulfill your every need, your every want, or your every desire. And it's my hope that all of us would look at God and see him guiding us as a pilgrim through this life and put our complete trust in him no matter what happens. And so I encourage you this week to read and study and meditate on these couple chapters and God's sovereignty in your life. I think they'll challenge you, they'll encourage you, and they'll instruct you about a God who loves you so much that he even ensures our very breath. Let's all stand. I'm going to leave you with one final verse that's going to help you see yourself as a pilgrim this week. And it's going to reorient you and help you to see exactly why God does what He does in your life. And it's from 1 Corinthians 2, 9 and 10 that says, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love Him. You are heading toward a destiny that is so awesome and fantastic. Again, if I could even cram it into that brain of mine, it would just make it boom, explode. We need to trust Him, trust His sovereignty, and walk with Him as a pilgrim to the reward He has for us. Let's pray. So Father, I just ask, Lord, that you correct our brains this morning. Many of us have different views of you. Many of us have, have deeply seated questions. Many of us have doubts and fear and unbelief. So I ask, Father, that you just correct this one thing this morning, that you help us to have a healthy view of your sovereignty. A sovereignty that is wrapped in a love for us that passes all understanding.